0: This episode is part of an occasional special series from Humankind Public Radio. We'll be telling stories of spiritual care providers who listen and offer counseling and help to people in need, sometimes people in distress. They're trained to be inclusive, not exclusive. We hope you enjoy these stories, and let us know how we're doing. Please visit spiritualcarepodcast.org to hear more in this series and to take our quick survey. Thank you. This series is presented by Humankind Public Radio in association with the BTS Center. Funding provided by the Henry Luce Foundation. You're listening to The Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. This time, Safe Place in a War Zone. We show up
1: where the people are, and we create a sanctuary of
0: sorts within a relationship of trust. As ministers of religion, military chaplains are protected personnel under the Geneva Convention. They are classified as noncombatants, prohibited from bearing arms by regulations of the U.S. Armed Services, where chaplains represent more than 200 denominations. For Reverend Chris Antow, questions of war and peace loomed over the early years of his life. My
1: childhood was spent in New England. I'm the son of a Vietnam veteran. My dad was a medical officer uh, in the U.S. Navy. Part of my childhood was wrestling with uh, the Vietnam War and the impact that had on my family and the country. And out of that, struggle, Mm -hmm. I arrived uh, at a pacifist conviction uh, in the second decade of my life. Uh, I held on to that uh, through my 20s when I became active in a religious uh, uh, life and formally associated with
0: a congregation and Then went to seminary. Today, Chris Antal serves a small Unitarian Universalist congregation at Rock Tavern, New York. It's a few minutes down the road from the National Purple Heart Hall of Honor in New Windsor, overlooking the Hudson River in southern New York State. He felt called to chaplaincy after the tragedy of 9-11. New York Mayor Rudolph Giuliani. People are doing everything that they can to rescue as many people as possible,
1: and this is going to be a long-term effort. So I just wanted to make sure
0: that everything is here that could be here, and it is. So we just pray to God that we can save a few people.
1: I was in seminary at the time of September 11th, and I watched the events unfold as the United States waged war, first uh, in Afghanistan and then in Iraq. And I saw the rate of suicides among U.S. service members uh, climb and eventually pass uh, any previous uh, measure in the four years after I graduated seminary. And I wrestled with my privilege, the choice that I have, whether to serve in the military or not to serve and decided that uh, it was consistent with my values and my commitment to compassion, um, responsibility, and fairness that I ought to do my part and I thought I could contribute uh, both to uh, uh, alleviating perhaps some of the suicides among the personnel but also bringing a um, liberal voice into a very conservative chaplaincy uh, at a time when our military was occupying Muslim lands. So it was uh, discernment about those factors uh, that led me to volunteer. Um, I was endorsed by the Unitarian Universalist Association. Um, At a time when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was on the cusp of repeal, created a big controversy in the military chaplain's corps. But I was representing a denomination that's open and affirming, Uh, and it seemed an appropriate time for a minister like myself to
0: enter the military. So you said that you wanted to bring a liberal voice into that atmosphere. What was that liberal voice? Well, as a military chaplain and officer,
1: we take an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. And for me, as a chaplain in particular, that meant the free exercise and no establishment of religion, a commitment to a pluralistic institution. And from the outside of the military, I had seen concerning indications from the commander-in-chief on down of uh, uh, religious language that could be construed to frame our conflict as almost a holy war against Islam by a Christian army. And I found that terrifying, quite frankly. So uh, the liberal voice uh, was, for me, first and foremost, a commitment to pluralism and the acceptance of diversity, of religious faith and also no religious faith within the military, and uh, a message of uh, inclusiveness and acceptance, and certainly of no establishment of religion.
0: Chris Antal first joined the New York National Guard in 2008. Within a year, the Army called him up. He was ordained in 2011, then mobilized for deployment to Afghanistan in 2012. Before departing, his congregation held a special service with prayers for his well-being on a distant, dangerous assignment. Reverend Antal was a chaplain in the Signal Corps at Kandahar Air Base in southeast Afghanistan. His duties as chaplain were to nurture the living, care for the wounded, And honor the dead in what's called a dignified transfer ceremony. Throughout, he tried to remain faithful to his social convictions. With
1: regards to the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I was a lonely voice in the chaplain corps when I was uh, public, open, and affirming of uh, same sex marriages in the military. Uh, I even officiated same sex weddings. And uh, I found myself uh, alone, often, and in some cases targeted because of that stand. By fellow chaplains? In some cases, yes. One called me poison to the chaplain corps. How did you feel about that? Well, I was hurt. Uh, I was scared because I was a low-ranking officer, and this was coming from a, a major, actually. As far as the uh, other piece uh, of um, no establishment, free exercise, again, there um, was an atmosphere of, in some cases, hostility. Uh, the story of James Yi, Chaplain Yi, who was a Muslim chaplain, imprisoned on charges of espionage, later totally vindicated. Uh, was fresh in my mind, and I would say it was part of my discernment and sense of call that as a minister representing the tradition of, that I do represent, which it has a deep and long standing commitment to free exercise of religion, that uh, I could contribute to um, what the military was recognizing as an emerging role for chaplains in Iraq and Afghanistan, which was religious. Leader liaison, faith based engagement with indigenous religious leaders, sheikhs, and imams. And that kind of ministry and that work sounded exciting to me. It was consistent with my commitment to peace building. And uh, I thought, as a chaplain from the tradition I represented, I was uniquely equipped to engage in interfaith dialogue with, um, with these Muslims. <laughs>
0: What was it like to be a spiritual presence in a war zone? Well, it was a a gift
1: uh, on the one hand. um, And I guess in the same gift, there was um, beauty and tragedy. I found beauty in the encounter of human beings and all their strengths and weaknesses. And the tragedy was in the death and what I would consider in in some cases uh, needless and unnecessary death. And there was beauty in the morning and in the sadness and in the ritual Mm. around the death and in the grief. Um, But there was also tragedy in the waste and the tremendous waste that I, I witnessed.
0: Waste of human life.
1: Waste of human life and um, resources, uh, huge amounts of money spent, equipment purchased, um, but I was challenged with the question, why and for what? And that question came to me from the people I was serving as the chaplain in, in most cases. I the, didn't have the, the answer.
0: The soldiers were
1: wrestling with why? Why? What are we doing here? I heard that more than once. It's a question that I'd asked myself, and uh, perhaps because of my uh, orientation where I'm coming from, we are a denomination that asks a lot of questions and doesn't offer a whole lot of answers. So we're able to sit with ambiguity pretty well and hold uncertainty. So uh, I thought that quality made me a better chaplain in this circumstance that I wasn't the chaplain who was going to give the, uh, the army answer uh, or the, the religious answer even per se, which I know some of the other chaplains would give. Um, so uh, I was able to sit and hold the uncertainty and, uh, and hang
0: out in that pretty uncomfortable place. And is that because you felt that to best spiritually care for the soldiers, it was appropriate to withhold a definitive answer to that question? Spiritual care for me is a lot about
1: being a companion with people in their distress and um, connecting people to their own resources to navigate through that distress. If you ask a, a, my commander or other commanders uh, in the military how they understand the role of the chaplain in that setting, you would probably get a very different answer that right. the chaplain is there to be a combat multiplier and to make the soldiers feel good about the mission. I never saw spiritual care about, as about helping anyone feel good. The spiritual care is, for me, about living well. And living well means, for me, at times, holding appropriate pain, including moral pain, like guilt and regret. Did you
0: hear from soldiers? guilt and regret I did was that hard for you that was hard for me
1: but that was part of the beauty was to be able to be a safe place for people in a war zone where they could be fully human and stay in touch with those threads of our humanity and i think guilt is a beautiful moral emotion that is a reminder that we are moral beings and that we have a conscience and that conscience hurts. It ought to hurt when
0: we're involved in behavior that causes harm to others. So when you say that part of your objective was to establish a safe place where people could go through some of those difficult feelings, what does it mean to establish a safe place in, obviously, an unsafe place, namely a war zone.
1: Well, that's uh, what we might call in the chaplaincy a ministry of presence. And within the military chaplaincy, and one of the beautiful things about the military chaplaincy is the promise of absolute confidentiality that chaplains only within the military chaplaincy are, um, by law, uh, able to provide service members. Uh, and what is shared within that relationship of trust uh, is um, uh, privileged communication and
0: its sacred speech. Even if someone were to disclose to you immoral acts or illegal acts of war?
1: Absolute confidentiality is the blessing and the curse of that in the military chaplaincy. Um, It goes so far as to include a soldier who has suicidal or homicidal intent. And that's where it becomes
0: real tricky. Discretion is essential to providing spiritual support in most any context, especially for service members being counseled and guided through sometimes agonizing heartache who may be experiencing profound psychological, social, and spiritual trauma, and who may be haunted by the fundamental human question of why. We're hearing the story of Rev. Chris Antal serving a Unitarian Universalist congregation in Rock Tavern, New York. He also served as a U.S. Army Chaplain at the Kandahar Air Base in Afghanistan beginning in 2012. You're listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more and to access additional episodes of this podcast along with other resources, please visit spiritualcarepodcast.org. Let's talk about a role of clergy to honor and to dignify the dead and their loved ones. In war, there are dead on both sides of a conflict. How does a chaplain in the armed services of one side— the United States, see the fact of loss on
1: the opposing side? I can only really speak for this chaplain. Uh, uh, I can tell you that uh, according to the Army doctrine of honoring the dead and the training that I received at Port Jackson at the chaplain school and a couple other schoolhouses I went to, uh, that was very narrowly interpreted to apply to the dead U.S. service members, that we honor the dead U.S. service members. However, uh, I um, belong to a religious community that covenants to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person. And I, I believe that all human life is precious and that the lives of U.S. citizens is no more precious than the lives of Afghans or Iraqis or anyone, anywhere. Uh, so it is a tension to be a minister representing a tradition that has um, a more global view of humanity and humankind within the institution of the military, which is a federal institution with a particular focus, uh, a tribal focus in that sense on us and our people. So I um, did my best to reconcile that, did not compartmentalize, which is the way some people deal with that dilemma is just not deal with it, avoid it. And the way I dealt with it in Afghanistan was uh, I would read the reports um, that I could read and educate myself about the impact of our operations uh, on the ground, as well as the people who were who were being killed. Uh, and where possible, I would look for names, uh, especially when it was children or uh, people that were um, so-called collateral damage. Uh, We would bring those to the service and read those names, along with the names of the U.S. service members who had died. We had candles. We would light memorial candles.
0: Why was it significant to seek out and read aloud the names of people on— the so-called other side who were harmed? Well, it's going back to the work
1: of spiritual care and um, the uh, uh, spiritual danger of dehumanizing the other, um, which um, is often part of military culture, the dehumanization of the other. The the so-called enemy. The so-called enemy and dehumanization by the use of uh, derogatory euphemistic language and it's not unique to the United States it's not unique to the Afghan and Iraq war it's it goes way back psychologically the studies indicate you know that it in order to kill our own species uh, that kind of dehumanization is a self-protective mechanism to allow us to do a dirty job um But as the chaplain, uh, I saw it as my role to help soldiers and service members stay in touch with their humanity and uh, experience appropriate guilt and remorse over the tragedy that war is. Not to deny that. Not to deny it uh, and not to sanctify it or rationalize it. Uh, and when I say sanctify, I mean to throw a cloak of piety over a conflict and say that these people are evil and that God is on our side, and, which I think is, um,
0: is a lie. Rev. Chris Antal took a controversial stand as an Army chaplain, he was reacting to the U.S. military policy of deploying drones, the unmanned aerial vehicles, as a weapon of war.
1: The MQ-1 Predator and MQ-9 Reaper support theater commanders by providing precision weapons employment and persistent intelligence This
0: Air Force video depicts drone operators wearing headphones seated in a room in front of consoles equipped with multiple video screens and high-tech computers could almost be mistaken for a video game arcade, except the devices used here are deadly.
1: With an unblinking eye over the battlefield, outfitted with television and infrared cameras, full motion video support, and the deadly Hellfire missiles, AFSOC Predators and Reapers are used to track both stationary and mobile targets and, when necessary, to eliminate those targets.
0: Chris Anton.
1: I witnessed uh, drones for the first time at Kandar Airfield uh, when I was standing on the flight line uh, for dignified transfer ceremonies. Before I encountered those uh, weapons, uh, they weren't really uh, in my awareness. Uh, in fact, the whole U.S. drone program uh, up until 2011, 2012 was pretty much hidden from public view. Um, it was after Anwal al was killed in Yemen with a drone strike that this uh, practice of, of targeting and killing people by remotely piloted vehicles came under more public scrutiny.
0: Advocates of military drones describe this technology as precision weaponry. Chris Antal emerged as a clear voice of dissent against military drones. In recent years in counterterrorism operations, the U.S. conducted hundreds of drone strikes killing several thousand people. Depending on how they're counted, estimates of civilian casualties range from 4 to 11 percent of those killed. The drone strikes,
1: as I learned about them, seem to uh, betray core military values that were instilled as, in me as an officer and as a chaplain values of honor, of um, courage, of respect, of integrity. So that was dismaying. Just a few weeks after I arrived uh, in Afghanistan, Momina Bibi, a grandmother, was out in the field in Pakistan picking okra with a couple of her grandchildren, and she was killed. And everything we know about that incident leads me to conclude, and not just me, but Amnesty International and other organizations, that she was killed by a U.S. drone strike. And I uh, later heard her children and her grandchildren's testimony about that day. That's where the tragedy is, the tragedy. um, And it's not just there, it's in the lowering of the threshold for the use of lethal force. Killing made easy, in a sense, by this new technology. There's a kill chain that goes back to uh, drone operators in a command center, typically uh, in the United States, uh, and that it's um, often through signals, intelligence, and high-speed fiber optic cables that uh, video feed is transmitted to these drone operators. And uh, decisions are made to kill. Uh, And uh, what is most disturbing to me, uh, and it was to me as a chaplain uh, in the military, was seeing uh, this kind of killing going on and feeling powerless
0: to have any influence over it. Did you have occasion to interact directly with any of the drone operators?
1: Only after I came back and started to uh, be active and lobbying uh, for policy changes, I started to speak out and attend conferences. And in those contexts, I encountered other people who had been in the service and also some people who were drone operators and uh, sensor operators
0: A number of service members who operated drones have suffered effects of post-traumatic stress, even though they were seated before video consoles sometimes thousands of miles from where a strike actually occurred. The live video feeds would show the human targets, although often at a distance. Operators watched as body parts flew, and sometimes families then rushed to pick up their loved ones. A Pentagon study in 2013 found that those piloting the drones suffered depression and anxiety at rates comparable to those of pilots flying manned aircraft. This sometimes enters the realm of moral injury, to which chaplains are especially sensitive. Reverend Chris Antal. Moral
1: injury is a construct that uh, has emerged out of the care of veterans in the Department of Veterans Affairs, first from the mental health professionals or psychiatrists and psychologists, but it's become a construct that has brought chaplains and mental health practitioners together. And I think that uh, captures well the distress of many of the people in the drone program. Moral injury is defined as a betrayal of what's right or of perpetrating, failing to prevent or bearing witness to acts that violate core values.
0: As his conscience was stirred about the use of weaponized drones, Chris Antal did some soul-searching. He concluded that he had an obligation to express dissent, often a considerable risk in the military environment.
1: I decided uh, it was my prerogative as a religious leader to speak about my moral concerns, about the way the U.S. was conducting warfare with the targeted drones in the context of my religious service. Uh, at Kandahar Airfield, uh, which I did, and um, perhaps uh, I was naive, but I I responded to a request from my denomination to share the text of my my sermon, and uh, and I did, and it was posted on my denomination's website. That was soon uh, uncovered uh, by the command. Uh, I was put under investigation. I was subjected uh, to An Article 156 investigation eventually uh, reprimanded with a general officer memorandum of reprimand for politically
0: inflammatory speech. He described it as a difficult ordeal. Reverend Antal then appealed marshalling support letters from theologians, military chaplains who had previously served, and other veterans. After a congressional inquiry, The chief chaplain's office in the Pentagon actually promoted Antal, who was then reassigned in 2013. Chris Antal hoped the drone policy would change, but grew discouraged, and in 2016 resigned his commission as a chaplain in the Army Reserve and received an honorable discharge. Here he reads from his controversial words.
1: This was from a sermon uh, called A Veteran's Day Confession for America, which I gave on a Sunday morning on Veterans Day uh, 2012 in Kandahar. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have made war entertainment, enjoying box seats, in the carnival of death, consuming violence, turning tragedy into games, raising our children to kill without remorse. We have morally disengaged, outsourcing our killing to the 1%, forgetting they follow our orders. The blood they shed is on our hands too. We have sanitized killing and condoned extrajudicial assassinations Death by remote control War made easy without due process Protecting ourselves from the human cost We have deceived ourselves Saying Americans do not kill civilians Terrorists do Denying the colossal misery Our wars inflict on the innocent The national closet bursts with skeletons Mm. The blood is on our hands too I believe that, and I believe that an honest confession of that reality would relieve many of our nation's veterans from the burden and the moral guilt that they often carry in isolation.
0: listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Noel Flatt. Editorial assistance from David Cruz, Kathy Graham, and Ken Rogers. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to WGBH Boston, WHYY Philadelphia, to Connie Goldman and Tony Buck. Our series is presented by Humankind Public Radio. To learn more and to access our other podcasts and related resources, please visit spiritualcarepodcast.org. That's spiritualcarepodcast.org. Thank you for listening.